You are listening to Shout for Libraries in Edmonton on CJSR. We are a group of library students at the University of Alberta who are raising awareness about topics such as censorship, freedom of expression, and social responsibility. My name is Michelle. I am a second year student in the master's program at the University of Alberta. I am a non-practicing lawyer at the moment, so I write our little monologues on copyright and law and so forth. Riveting stuff. Another very, very interesting topics that I promise won't make you just want to flip the dial to another radio station immediately. And I'm Marin, and I'm also a second-year library student at the University of Alberta. In my other life, I am also an actor, so if you hear any funny noises or voices, that is my version of monologues that slightly <laughs> differs from Michelle's. <laughs> anyway, we'll be your hosts for this half hour of library-centric radio, but we'd like to take this opportunity to introduce to you our new host that is joining our ranks, Miss Julia Guy. Hi, Julia. Hi, guys. Uh, so I'm Julia. <laughs> this is my first year of the MLAS program, New Kid in Town, and uh, I also come from a theater background like Marin, and I'm going to be learning alongside you guys our listeners all about libraries. All right, I'll just be the weirdo in the room then. On each episode of Shout for Libraries, we explore a different issue in library and information studies. So today we're going to take a look at some of the issues surrounding makerspaces in the library in light of the Edmonton Public Library's makerspace celebrating their fifth year anniversary. Woohoo! Could you tell us a little bit about what a makerspace is and what goes on in there? For sure! Um, A makerspace is a completely public, creative, and collaborative environment um, that offers library patrons an opportunity to create intellectual and physical materials using resources such as computers or 3D printers, audio and video capture, and editing tools. Or it's also just a really fun place that you can go to play with little robots and design your own video games. That sounds amazing. It is. So Julia will be visiting a makerspace for the very first time later today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you know about makerspaces or what your expectations are going in? Yeah, so I I actually don't know a ton about makerspaces, basically what Marin just uh, told us about just now. Uh, I'm imagining it's like this place where there's just stuff like you can rent or use to do things, but I'm not entirely (laughs) sure uh, what is on offer, to be honest. Uh, I've never gone to access it before, so we'll find out. A place where you can get stuff to do things. Actually, very accurate description <laughs> of a makerspace. You are not far off at all. <laughs> and I think it does depend on the library. So EPL has uh, has its own specific things that you can rent and do there. Um, one thing you might want to check out is the music recording studio that they have. So they have a lot of uh, not just tech stuff, but also artistic things that you can play around with while you're there. Artistic things. Ooh. <laughs> okay, so here we are. We're about to enter into the makerspace. Um, are you ready, Julia? I am ready. I don't know totally what to expect, but we're here. We're at the Enterprise Square makerspace downtown. Just turning the corner here, following the signs. And here we are. Okay. Um, all right, I'm I'm walking in. This is pretty neat. Uh, it's got a really open layout, which is kind of cool. I was sort of imagining you'd have to like go through kind of a, a door or get permission, but it's not. It's just 
part of the library. Anybody can just walk on in. Um, yeah, there's lots of big tables where people are using different kinds of tech. And it looks like pretty much everything is... Um, there's certain things not being used, but for the most part, lots of stuff is being accessed right now, which looks kind of neat. Okay, through here, there's... Um, a giant green screen, which was cool. That wasn't what I was expecting. I was imagining like kind of the like old AV room in my high school that was, you know, not nearly as. This looks like like a movie studio or something. It's got a massive green wall for a green screen, which is really neat. Um, what else is there? There's these like I want to go check these out. There's like things. It looks like like a 3D print or something. Oh yeah, it is. Okay, I'm just gonna go check that out. Oh, this is so cool. Someone's printing, like, it looks like a dragon or something on this 3D printer. It's like very Game of Thrones. That's really neat. Oh, okay, now I'm looking at something else, a vinyl cutter. Um, yes, yeah, so we got the 3D printer. We've got a vinyl cutter. We've got, like, a movie studio with a green screen. There's this thing I want to go check out over here that looks like maybe it's, like, Lego or something. Oh, my gosh. It's Lego. It's robot Lego. Oh, this is so cool. Do you want to build a robot? Like, is that even a question? Yes. We need to find two wheels, so I'm gonna go into wheels. Two wheels. All right, there we go. I needed a new set of wheels. And we need two motors. Motors. Two axles. What do axles look like in Lego? <laughs> I don't even know if I know what they look like in regular life. In real, in the real world. The real world. <laughs> this looks like the thing in the photo. Okay, this is totally what an axle is. I should be a mechanic. Okay, there we go. Wait, they should also probably be the same size. Are you an axle? No. There is something like really nostalgic and satisfying about playing with Legos as an adult, building something, even just as a way of just alleviating stress. Like, oh, look, I've made a thing. I mean, at least that's what I assume it will be like once I make this. <laughs> nope, that's a different length of action. I think this is it in this. Great. We've assembled the pieces. Nailing it. I feel like I'm building a transformer. I'm having flashback. <laughs> this is really fun. I feel like every grad student should do this. <laughs> they should all come to a makerspace. Okay, oh my gosh. I am in the wrong field. I'm clearly meant to be a mechanical engineer because I am nailing this. I'm gonna take it to Thunder Road and race for pinks. <laughs> it's a Grease reference. I know. <laughs> if this works, I think this will... Oh my oh. gosh, oh my gosh, it made a noise. It's alive! <laughs> Look at it go! Oh my god, it's moving! <laughs> oh my god, I'm so proud of myself. I feel so good about my abilities to make a robot. If I can make a robot, what can't I do? What can't I do? 
Okay, so Julia, that was your very first makerspace experience. Mm-hmm, uh, you mm-hmm. built a little robot. You saw some cool stuff. Uh, how how was that for you? Uh, honestly, it was pretty awesome. Uh, I it was definitely like the level of tech was a lot higher than I would have anticipated. I had never seen a 3D printer before. This is the only one I know of personally. I've never seen like that kind of a green screen thing before. Or definitely never uh, ex- like experimented with the robotics or anything either. So that was pretty cool. And uh, I don't immediately have a ton of need for this kind of stuff, but when I do, I will know exactly where to go, Um, which is really, really cool. You'll know who to call? (laughs) My local library. So that was our very own Julia Guy uh, exploring her first maker space. Um, now, next up, we have Chris Joseph interviewing Holly Arnassen, who is the manager of the maker space. I am sitting with Holly Arneson, who is uh, the associate director, am I correct? Uh, associate manager. Associate manager. <laughs> of the uh, makerspace, yeah. Of the makerspace at the Edmonton Public Library. And we are sitting in the audio recording booth. Yeah, this. so we moved into this space at the beginning of 2017, and at that time the Milner branch underwent is and is still undergoing a major renovation. At this temporary location, it's been interesting because these are former studio and um, editing spaces, so we've been able to take advantage of some of the pre-existing structure, and that's been a great learning for us. It's also really interesting because we're we're just able to sort of like try different things with our spaces. It's a really interesting point that you're making because I think people might uh, imagine that a makerspace is something that is, is static, that you set it up, you have a bunch of equipment, and then you just operate services out of it. So you're telling me that this is a very dynamic environment. Is that an intentional part of the approach that you, you have here? Absolutely. The approach was really heavily focused on cre- creating an accessible and innovative space where people could access creative technologies and could participate in, you know, the making of different cultural products. The makerspace is also a laboratory for what might happen in other parts of the library. So we've been very deliberately taking things that have worked well in the makerspace so far and testing them out in our branch locations. And we're working on a new makerspace, a very small one in our Capilano branch that will be reopening in a new building later this year. Do you feel that there was a sense that sort of the downtown location is spoiled in terms of having access to the makerspace and the technologies here? Are the branches hankering for the kinds of things that you guys have here? (laughs) I definitely would say so. We've been kind of figuring out what's the right way to, um, what's the right service to try out in a branch, what's the right way to do that. And so in terms of accessibility, this is something that I'm really interested and always like sensitive to because for some people the make the downtown makerspace is very accessible on transit by the LRT just by walking for some folks and others uh, who are part of the broader Edmonton community it's not as accessible if you can't take a car. I think you're touching on one of the sort of the bigger things that I wanted to talk about today which is that that notion of accessibility and, and there's one aspect there which is the physical sense of accessibility but the other thing about makerspaces in general uh, for people who are unfamiliar with technologies walking into uh, a library and seeing a book-making machine, 3D printers, an array of computers with people who seem to really know what they're doing as they're playing League of Legends or Warcraft 
or uh, editing audio, that that can be uh, somewhat terrifying. So what does accessibility in terms of the technology mean in terms of your approach to how the service is delivered? So there's a few elements to designing um, for making a space that does feel welcoming and is accessible. One of the things that we did from the beginning is we've designed the services so that there's very low barriers to access. So most of the resources can be booked with a library card, which is free. Another thing that we've really done is we've really emphasized the ability of people to sort of drop into the space and be able to get staff help. It's so common for people to walk into our space and see the 3D printers and get excited, especially if there's something cool being printed out. But then when it comes to us asking them, what do you think you might make? That's where that staff person really comes in and like helps to kind of connect that person's creative interests and drive with what's possible in the makerspace. Part of it, I think, is the, like, the design and the tool selection of the makerspace. So as an example, you know, the high-tech recording space that we're, that we're sitting in right now, if it was just digital instruments in the computer, there would be certain types of people who are interested in making music who wouldn't necessarily feel welcome coming in. But we have a range of different instruments in here, um, a really beat up acoustic guitar, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a much better conditioned bass and electric, um, and things like, you know, percussion instruments to help meet people at different um, kinds of creative process and different kinds of, like different places where they might be entering the makerspace. With the accessibility, another aspect of it is, you know, I'm not going to deny that a lot of the technology that we're sitting in the midst of in the makerspace, um, sometimes when you look at advertising for it and what kinds of media and publications it get talked in about, that can skew very uh, male and very sort of predominantly white. And so looking for ways to say to different communities, whether it's through programming or through the tool selection, this is your space and you're welcome to participate too, has been really exciting and really powerful. I think we're sort of skirting around it, but what does digital literacy mean in terms of uh, uh, culture access and why is, the, why is the library a place for it? Digital literacy is... It's, it's a set of skills around the production and um, the use of digital media. Some of the folks that I've talked to here over the years, they have computers or they've had computers in the past, but having the sort of ability to maintain them for, you know, very low cost um, or to keep up to date or, you know, to have an opportunity to learn something new, those opportunities aren't available across the board to everybody. So having that here in the library, I think is really crucial. And we build on that with the makerspace because then we add creative outlet and creative expression as well. It's the idea of basically a really appealing and low input activity where people feel safe engaging with it and they feel welcome to join in and participate. There's some really interesting um, research that was done by the Chicago Public Library a couple of years ago about the impact of their adult-focused maker program. And they were seeing gains in basically digital literacy by engaging with makerspace technologies. Is there anything that we haven't touched on today that you specifically wanted to mention or address as part of your work or a part of the makerspace? That's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, I could talk about the makerspace all day, basically. Yeah. It's just constantly surprised me since I started working on the project where people will connect over things. 
recently there was a gentleman who was kind of drawn in by one of the other people making Lego robots in the space. These are adults, and this is technology that's aimed at um, eight to 12 year olds. So we've already like, this is already a major win basically, <laughs> that we have adults feeling comfortable engaging with technology. And the first conversation that we have is around a car that they built the other day. And they're asking like, is it okay if they build a car right now? And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, show me your design too. And we're, we're engaging for the first time. And we've had so many, so many situations like that where there's been unexpected connections, new conversations, and like new relationship building as a result. And I think that's, for me, that's one of the reasons why I got into library work in the first place is about the people and the connections. And the access to information is a really important part of that, but it's also about, you know, more than just a particular container of that information, it's considering the community as a resource as well. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Holly. I really appreciate the, the passion that you bring to the work here in the makerspace, and I'm really excited to see how things will shape up in the new building. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. <laughs> thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR. So I'm happy to introduce to you our newest field reporter, Hong Yi, and she'll be doing a telephone interview with the creator of the Maker Bus in London, Ontario. So this, five years ago, was Canada's first Maker Bus, and its programming has reached more than 30,000 kids and 2,000 educators, uh, and it provides learning activities from arts and crafts to coding. So let's learn about the Maker Bus. With doot, doot. Hop on the magic make bus. <laughs> Let's learn about the maker bus. <laughs> with Hong Yi. <laughs> My name is Kim Martin. I'm one of the three co-founders of the Maker Bus, which started uh, just over five years ago in London, Ontario. Um, and I'm currently a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Guelph. Um, where I work in digital humanities and the history department. So what is the MakerBus and how did you guys come up with this idea? Right. Well, the MakerBus is quite literally a bus. Um, it's an old school bus um, that we purchased with money that we crowdsourced. Um, originally, we wanted it for a, uh, a trip for a bunch of grad students to go to a conference. And then once we had the bus, we had to kind of find something to do with it um, and because the money was crowdsourced from the local London Ontario community we wanted to do something that would give back to the community that helped us purchase it so we talked to our local library um, London Public Library and several other groups around town and worked with a local nonprofit to purchase um, the bus get it on the road and make it into a makerspace so can you tell us what characteristics that you took into consideration when designing the maker bus in terms of accessibility? Yeah, um, we, we, took a, we thought a lot about it and we didn't get quite as far as we'd like to. But one of the main reasons for the, for the maker bus 
being mobile was that we could reach different parts of the London community that the physical libraries would not have been able to. A lot of the libraries here are quite small, and even though they are all physically accessible, I believe, um, they don't have the space to have a makerspace in them. Some of them have teeny tiny parking lots, for example, so we did pop-up events um, for the first two or three summers that we worked at the library um, where we would pop like a local park or down the road or if they had a big enough space um, on their property and we did make events that way. Um, We also did our best with the accessibility in terms of the bus. Um, We did look into things like getting a lift, a chairlift to go onto the bus. It was more expensive than what we originally paid for the vehicle itself. So instead, when we did events, we always made sure it was possible to do the event inside and outside of the bus. So if we went to schools, we brought tables and set up outside, as opposed to having everyone have to move through the physical bus, because that was not always possible. So could you tell us some, maybe some facilities on the bus? Yeah, we've done all kinds of things in there. Um, We stripped all the seats out with the exception of the front four, which we kind of turned around and made them, um, we called them like maker pods, basically two seats facing each other with a table between them. And in the rest of the space, we've done everything from 3D printing workshops uh, to photogrammetry to different kinds of um, crafts and electronics. We did podcasting out of the bus as well. And then we've also had various events on there, kind of like one night events where people have turned the inside of a bus to kind of like a small art installation and people walk through it. So um, is there any other like major differences in design between the maker bus and the traditional maker spaces? Um, I think the size is obviously a difference. Most maker spaces I've visited are quite a bit bigger than the interior of a bus. Um, we did, for the first little while, manage to keep most of our stuff either on the bus in, um, you know, in small storage. Um, or kind of easily um, easily loadable from one of our homes. But as we grew, it was harder and harder to do that. Um, so I think size is, is a big factor. Um, it also kind of limits how many people you can be working with at a given time. Um, we have probably, there's probably about eight people um, that can sit comfortably on the bus if they need workspace, and probably 12 if they if you just kind of have seating laid out and they're working on something small. So obviously working with smaller groups or having people have to move through the space quite quickly, which is different from sitting down in uh, maker space um, and, you know, working and being able to pull things from everywhere and work together. Kim, um, so I wonder um, whether you have noticed some, let's say, the trends in designing maker spaces in your observation? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the research I do right now um, focuses not only on accessibility, but also on um, gender and diversity within makerspaces. So um, there's been quite a bit of of change from the uh, more traditional, um, lots of them happen in a basement, no no natural light kind of like work area that often encompassed a lot of men using the space. Um, And it's they're changing um, somewhat, and there's a lot of uh, feminist makerspaces now that exist, um, and they exist either because a collective of, um, uh, of, of people got together and decided that they needed a different space, or that current spaces kind of change. So you mentioned you've done some research on makerspaces and digital humanities centers from a feminist perspective. Correct. So how does feminism, like the feminist mindset, relate to or influence the MakerBus project? How is the diversity in the project? 
Um, I would actually say that the Maker Bus influenced me getting into the feminist research. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. So when um, my two uh, co-founders on the Makerspace are Ryan Hunt and Beth Compton, and so two women identified uh, co-founders and, and one man, and we all, you know, we got along fantastically, but over the kind of first three years, the three of us all realized that people were very quickly um, asking Ryan the tech questions or going to him if there was problems with, you know, a 3D printer, um, which was infuriating because we all had the same knowledge. Um, Beth's PhD is in um, archaeology and she uses 3D printers in her research. So if anyone was going to be, you know, the person that you should be asking, um, it would have been her, but people just automatically kind of assumed that... Ryan was a man, and therefore Ryan should know more about technology. And so when I started my postdoc at Guelph, which was about two years ago now, I started to look um, around the concept of making in digital humanity centers and in makerspaces, both on campus and public makerspaces, um, and really started to think about the way uh, that women are comfortable or uncomfortable in those spaces. And this wasn't just a gender issue, there's also uh, different sexual preferences and uh, people who portray themselves in certain ways that have been made to feel uncomfortable um, in kind of the more traditional makerspaces. Um, this is all focused on Southern Ontario, my research, although I have visited spaces outside of that. And then when you get into the literature, um, it's very obvious that these kind of feminist spaces are needed and are there for a reason. Um, they've been started up in San Francisco and Seattle um, New York, and it's kind of just a different collective with a different agenda, which is you know for everyone to be comfortable and be making together. And some of them are very politically feminist, and others are just of the understanding. You know, they're still political, but they're not outwardly political. They just are want a, want a place where people can come and work together and feel comfortable. That's very inspiring, and it is a very important issue. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I just wrote a grant, so I'll, I'll, I'll have more information in about a year. Thank you very much today for talking with us. No problem whatsoever. Let me know if you need anything else, okay? Awesome. Very cool information right there about the Maker Bus. Uh, that's all uh, we have for you today. So we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, thank you to all our guests, including me, uh, for joining us at Shout for Libraries. <laughs> yes, thank you, Julia. You can visit our Facebook page at Shout for Libraries or visit us on Twitter at Shout the Number Four Libraries. Once again, this has been Michelle and Marin and Julia, and uh, we have been your hosts for this half hour of Library Centric Radio. Catch us on the next episode of Shout for Libraries. So the name of the song used in this episode is called Shade. It was recorded by local musician Conjure in the Makerspace Studio at the Enterprise Square Library. The recording studio is one of the most popular services there, and it's equipped with acoustic and electric instruments, recording equipment, and audio software. You're all welcome to record your own album, podcast, or even video game dialogue at the Makerspace.
So hold on, everybody. Uh, before we go, we are trying to figure out a tagline here. Julia has informed us that we have a lame ending to the show, so we're going to be figuring out. We have a couple of options here, uh, and you can write us in on our Facebook or Twitter or our SoundCloud and tell us which of these uh, makes sense, I think, is a good place to start. <laughs> All right, let's go. Option one, support, support your, your local, local library. library. Option two. Look, Look it, it up. up! Or option three. Shout! Okay, we are adding this fourth one in, but only Julie is going to say it because we've agreed that she has the most seductive library voice. So uh, option four. I'll see you in the stacks. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>